Good afternoon, everyone. As you may know, there are many who assert that Christians have no obligation to keep God's commandments. They assert that Jesus freed us from the law. And while they may not necessarily say that you should not keep the commandments in so many words, the idea is that we have no real obligation to keep the commandments. At best, the commandments are the Ten Suggestions, not the Ten Commandments. And there are some scriptures that are commonly used to back up these assertions. One of those chapters that is often used to imply that Christians are not, not under no obligation to keep the commandments of God is Acts 15. And in a previous sermon, I explained or began to explain Acts 15. We read in Acts 15 that there was a question brought before the church early in its existence. It was an assertion by converts from among the Pharisees that Gentile converts into the church must be physically circumcised and keep the law of Moses, as we read in Acts chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. That was their contention, that the Gentile converts must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. In order to have a thorough understanding of Acts 15, one must understand the background of the controversy from a scriptural point of view, but also from a historical standpoint. And one must also apply the principle of letting the Bible interpret the Bible, as we have often stressed. You will not find the answers to the questions raised in Acts 15 by just reading that chapter alone. You must understand the chapter in relation to the rest of Scripture and also to its historical background. And this means that in explaining the chapter of Acts 15, we must go into considerable detail to fill in this background information and connect what is stated in Acts 15 to scriptures that relate to it and also to understand its implications, we have to look at the, his, the historical background as well. And this takes time going into such details. Now I could sk skim over the chapter in uh, one sermon, but I doubt that that would add much to your understanding. I think it's worth an investment in our time to help us understand this chapter, and I think it's important that we do understand it because as even some Protestant commentaries point out, Acts 15 is a chapter about which there is more confusion than almost any other single chapter of the Bible. And even some, as I mentioned, some Protestant commentaries admit that, that there is more confusion about Acts 15 and what its implications are than almost any other single chapter of the Bible. And 
that's why it's been often used to attack true biblical teachings regarding what God expects and requires of Christians concerning his laws, his commandments. Now, I recently gave a sermon, the first sermon on this chapter, where I mostly discussed what is meant by the term the law of Moses. And the question that was being addressed in Acts 15 was, is it necessary for Christians to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses? So it's essential that we understand what is meant by the term the law of Moses. And as I pointed out in that sermon, the law of Moses, that term, has at least three meanings, three distinct meanings as it is used in Scripture, depending on the context. First of all, it means all that is written in the first five books of the Bible or the Pentateuch, which is often referred to as the Law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. Secondly, it means the Old Covenant in its entirety, the Old Covenant system. And there are a number of scriptures where the law or the law of Moses is referred to, or sometimes just the law, especially in Paul's writings, where it is referring to the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant system, which includes what is written in the first five books of the Bible. That is, that was the where the Old Covenant was introduced in those books, and that is what the idea of the covenant is based on, is what is revealed there. But a second meaning of the law of Moses is the covenant itself and all that that implies. And then there's a third meaning to the term the law of Moses as it was commonly understood by the Jews at the time of Christ and is still understood by the Jews when that term is used quite often. And that is the traditional or oral law of the Jews, particularly the Pharisees, that was added to what was written in the scriptures. And the term law or law of Moses, as used and understood by the Jews at the time the book of Acts was written, but the time that this conference recorded in Acts 15 occurred, the term law of Moses included, as far as the Jews understood it, and especially the Pharisees, the things that were held by them as tradition, their traditional teachings, the teachings of the Pharisees, the tradition, the traditions of the Pharisees would have been included in what was meant by the law of Moses. And so the law of Moses could include any one of these things that we've just mentioned, these three ideas, the Pentateuch, the Old Covenant, the oral traditions of the Pharisees. It could include any of those or it could, it could include all three of them, depending on the context. Now, if you read through the chapter of Acts 15, it's evident that 
the church determined that Gentile converts were not required to be physically circumcised. And they were not required to keep the law of Moses, as that term was commonly used and understood in terms of what was being discussed in that conference. And that, remember, that would have included the oral traditions of the Pharisees. So what does that mean then for us as Christians? What does that imply for us as Christians regarding obedience to God, regarding obedience to the Ten Commandments and other commandments of the Bible? In order to understand that question, we need to take a closer look at the historical and scriptural background and how the church arrived at its decision and what exactly was entailed in that decision. We're going to begin to do that in today's sermon. We need to understand that the New Testament church had its roots in the Jewish religion. The church used the same scriptures as the Jews. Jesus and all his closest disciples during his lifetime as during his sojourn on the earth as a human being, all not only he, but all of his closest disciples were Jews. The apostles that he chose were all Jews. For about 10 to 14 years after the founding of the church, the church itself consisted almost exclusively of circumcised Jews. Now, that would also include some full proselytes, as they were called, that is, Gentiles, who had accepted the Jewish religion and been circumcised. During the early period, consisting of the first 14 years or so, the church had also reached out to the Samaritans, who also claimed to have Jewish origins and who also practiced circumcision. So... We're told in the book of Acts that a number of Samaritans were converted during that period, and they presumably would have been circumcised as most Samaritans were at that time. We know of only one uncircumcised Gentile who was baptized before Peter was led by God to baptize Cornelius and some of his relatives and friends. And that individual we read about was an Ethiopian eunuch. Notice over in Acts chapter 8, in Acts chapter 8, and beginning with verse 26, it says, So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, Preaching the gospel to uh, uh, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, "Arise and go toward the south, along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert." And so he rose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the the queen of the Ethiopians who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. So here was an Ethiopian, a Gentile, 
who had been in Jerusalem to worship. Now, he would not have been circumcised because under the law, a, an, a, 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 a eunuch was not permitted to be a part of the congregation in the fullest sense. That is, he was, uh, he was not allowed the privileges that would have been afforded to others. That doesn't mean that he could not worship God, but there were certain uh, ceremonial aspects of the sacrificial system, the Levitical system, that he could not participate in. So, but here was a Gentile who was a eunuch, who was in fact, who had in fact gone to Jerusalem to worship. So he was what would have been called a God-fearer, what is called a God-fearer, and was then called a God-fearer by the Jews, one who fears God. And another term used for someone in this particular status was a half-proselyte. That is, someone who was a God-fearer, someone who professed to fear the God of Israel and who identified with the Jewish religion, but who was not circumcised. And that's what this man was. And so, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, uh, go toward the south. And uh, he arose and beheld this Ethiopian who was returning from Jerusalem in verse 28, was sitting in a chariot, and he was reading Isaiah the prophet, the book of Isaiah. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I lest someone guides me? and asked Philip to come up and sit with him. And the place in the scripture which he read was, he, led, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. So this was a proselyte of the gate, an uncircumcised Gentile who was a God-fearer, who believed in the gospel after it was explained to him and Philip baptized him. This was, as I said, the only record of any persons who were not circumcised who were baptized and became part of the church prior to 
the baptism of Cornelius and his household, which occurred later and was done by Peter. Now, because the church was rooted in the Jewish religion, sharing the same scriptures, its practices were similar in certain respects to Jewish practices, yet there were also fundamental differences. And the New Testament reflects the similarities as well as the differences in the Jewish religion it was, as it was being practiced at the time of the New Testament and Christianity. The New Testament was written partly to address and to explain the differences between the practices of the church and that of traditional Judaism. And so we read in a, lot, a lot in the Gospels, for example, about the Sabbath and the controversies regarding the Sabbath which occurred because Jesus did not recognize many of the Pharisaic traditions regarding what was to be done or not done on the Sabbath. For example, the Pharisees regarded healing as something that was forbidden to be done on the Sabbath, the healing of a person, or any action aimed at affecting the healing of a person was something that was regarded as work that was forbidden to be done on the Sabbath by the Jews. And Jesus, of course, specifically healed people on the Sabbath in the in in the the company of Pharisaic leaders and they strenuously objected to those acts of healing that he did. There are other conflicts between what Christ taught and what the the Pharisaic traditions held as well reflected in the Gospels as well as the rest of the New Testament. In the first century A.D., there were Jewish communities and synagogues in virtually every significant population center of the old world, including much of Asia stretching as far as India and China, virtually the entire Roman Empire, including Italy, Gaul, Greece, North Africa, Spain, and Britain. Jewish communities existed in the far reaches of Germany outside the bounds of the Roman Empire. There's even evidence of Jewish settlements in North America, dating possibly from the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, who died in 163 B.C. through the 2nd century A.D. And this has been documented in various books. And there is even actually abundant evidence of widespread Hebrew influence in the New World, as it's called, the Americas, dating even back as far as the second millennium B.C., but, but we, we have specific evidence of Jewish communities in North America at the time or around the time of the New Testament era. And so it was with ample justification that James stated in Acts 15, in verse 21, James says, Moses 
has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And so almost every city of any major size, certainly within the the Roman Empire and, and many places beyond the bounds of the Roman Empire were places where there were Jewish synagogues and where Moses was read. The first century Jews were roughly divided into two major groups. The Eastern Diaspora, as it's called, that is, Jews that were scattered into countries to the east of Palestine, was, is referred to as the Eastern Diaspora, and their chief language, at least in, in the Near East, was Aramaic, or some believe perhaps Hebrew, but it was either Aramaic or Hebrew, which are very similar languages, almost identical in many respects. And then there was the Western Diaspora, whose chief language was Greek. And a very important subgroup among these two major groups, the Eastern and Western Diaspora, a major subgroup were the Palestinian Jews, the Jews who lived in Palestine. And that would include Jews who lived in Judea and Galilee. And they were mostly of the Eastern Diaspora and mostly spoke Aramaic or Hebrew. And although most of them would have been able to speak and write Greek as well, but their primary language was Aramaic or Hebrew. Now, there were key differences in the way Palestinian Jews, as opposed to Hellenistic Jews, Hellenistic is a term for Greek, and Hellenistic Jews would refer to the Greek to the Jews whose primary language was Greek or the Eastern or the Western diaspora. And the Palestinian Jews viewed certain matters differently from the typical way that the Jews of the Western diaspora would have viewed them, especially in matters related to Gentile converts. And understanding these differences is essential to understanding how the church developed its approach to Gentile converts. The, as I mentioned, the first Christians were all Jews, and they were virtually all Palestinian Jews. All the apostles, for example, were Palestinian Jews. Jews who had been born in and lived in and grown up in Palestine. And they were then of the what, what we refer to as the Eastern Diaspora. Uh, actually, they, in a sense, would not have been considered the Diaspora because they were living in the Jewish homeland. But they were similar in their views to the Eastern Diaspora, people who spoke Aramaic or Hebrew as the primary language. And so they would have viewed religious matters from that standpoint. The religious life of the Palestinian Jews was dominated by the Pharisees, 
the Pharisees were never very numerous. It's estimated there were, there were six or, uh, or 7,000 Pharisees, for example, at the time of Jesus. But despite the fact that they did not comprise the majority of the population in Palestine, they were very influential in how people viewed religion. And the Pharisees were organized into closed communities. In these communities, there were strict rules of religious observance. You might liken these communities in some ways to, for example, different Protestant sects, although it, it might not be precisely the same, but each Protestant denomination, for example, has its own ideas about various various practices, although they share a great deal in common. And this is how the Pharisees operated. They, would, they had closed communities where many things were viewed very similarly, but not necessarily exactly the same in every community. But they were very similar in their, in their views and practices. And they had strict rules of religious observance based on the teachings of their scribes. Each community had scribes or religious teachers. These were ordained teachers of the law, similar to a, an ordained minister in a Christian church. And these individuals were highly trained in the scriptures. Actually, they began training from early childhood in most cases. And then as they got up into adulthood, they were ordained and were qualified to be scribes or teachers of the law. And they're the ones who established the rules of the community. And the Pharisaic communities emphasized especially strict rules of purity and of tithing. This is where the emphasis on their rules lay, on rules of purity and tithing. And in these matters, they went far beyond biblical teachings, especially in their rules of purity. Not so much in tithing necessarily, but in purity, they went beyond the teachings of Scripture. And they, in many of their rules and rites of purification... They were designed to specifically set them apart from Gentiles and even ordinary Jews. Here's a statement from Angus Green Bible Handbook regarding this. Angus Green Bible Handbook, it was a matter both of principle and policy to multiply the external signs by which they were distinguished from the Gentile world or from those of their own countrymen who approached towards it. So it was a matter of principle and policy to establish rules which would distinguish them from Gentiles and even other more, more prosaic or ordinary Jews. Pharisaic communities had strict rules of admission. And before someone could be admitted to the community there was typically a period of probation. And during the 
course of their probation, as Joachim Jeremiah says in his book, Jerusalem in the Time of Jesus, he said during the course of the probation period, the postulant had to prove his ability to follow the ritual law. So there was a period of probation before the person would be admitted to full membership in the community. And during that period, he had to demonstrate that he was capable of following the laws of purification. In other words, he had to go through certain purification rituals. And the kind of purity emphasized by the Pharisees, as we mentioned, had to do with external signs, such as washings, strict rules of handling food, and so forth, which distinguished them as separate from the Gentiles. This also gave them a badge of righteousness and marked them as the true Israel in their view. And you see that some of these rituals reflected in the controversies between Jesus and the Pharisees, as you read about, for example, in Mark chapter 7, where we, we read, I won't take the time to go over there and read it to you now, but I think we did read it in at least part of it in the last sermon, but you remember that Jesus and his disciples, or at least some of his disciples, ate without washing in a certain particular ceremonial way as the Pharisees did. And so they complained to Jesus about the fact that his disciples were not washing in that particular way before they ate. And then Jesus rebuked them for such traditions, including traditions about washing of cups and pitchers. And he was talking specifically about all of these rituals, these purification rituals that they had concocted as a mark of righteousness. That was, in their view, that was what made the difference between a person being righteous or not righteous. It's whether he observed their traditions, including how to wash your dishes and various other things. According to these teachings... Gentiles were unclean automatically and by birth, by nature, the the Gentiles were regarded as unclean, and almost every kind of social contact with them was forbidden. According to rabbinical teachings, Jews were allowed to do business, business with Gentiles under certain restrictions, but other than that, all contact was to be avoided. Jews were not, for example, to eat with Gentiles. That was forbidden according to the laws of purification. If a person ate with a Gentile, then he was coming into contact with a Gentile in a way that would render him unclean. They were not to help Gentiles medically whose lives were in danger. Nor were they to seek medical aid from a Gentile If a Jew's life was in danger, food prepared by a Gentile, for example, a loaf of bread or oil that had been prepared by a Gentile or wine that had been made by a Gentile was automatically considered unclean. Even food that had been touched by a Gentile was unclean. For example, if a bottle of wine had been handled by 
a Gentile that was unclean and unfit for use. Now, none of these concepts are found in the Bible. You won't find any of these ideas in the Bible. They're not there. But nevertheless, they affected the attitudes of Peter, one of Jesus' apostles, and perhaps the other original apostles, who were all Palestinian Jews. Notice what we read over here in Acts chapter 10, for example, in verse 28. In Acts 10, verse 28, Peter said to, I believe he was speaking here to Cornelius, and he said to him, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. So this is notice that this is what Peter is saying to this Gentile, Cornelius. And Cornelius was a proselyte of the gate or a God-fearer, as we will see perhaps in a minute. But Peter said it's unlawful for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. This was Peter's idea that he had. But again, this is not something that is found in Scripture. This was an idea that he had picked up from the Pharisaic traditions which permeated Palestinian Judaism. And so Peter went on to say, God has shown to me that I should not call any man common or unclean. In other words, what what God was revealing to Peter in this incident that's recorded in Acts chapter 10, is that contrary to the teaching of the Pharisees, Gentiles were no more inherently unclean than anyone else. In one sense, we're all unclean by nature, because human nature itself is corrupt in certain respects. Where We've all sinned. We're all defiled before God by our sins. But... No one group of people, no one nationality is any more unclean by nature than any other. And that's what God was revealing to Peter here, and this is what Peter understood from the incident that occurred there. He had the idea that it was unlawful for a Jewish man to keep company with a Gentile, But he said, God has shown to me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Now this is relevant to what we find being discussed in Acts chapter 15. In fact, Peter even alludes to this incident and the outcome of it in the discussion in Acts 15. Now, you might think, well, given this idea of the, this attitude of the Jews toward Gentiles, that, that all Gentiles would hate the Jews, not want anything to do with them or their religion. But the fact is that there were quite a number of Gentiles, especially in the Roman world, a number of Gentiles who were drawn to the Jewish religion at the time of the New Testament was written. 
or at least they were drawn to the biblical religion. They were drawn to the scriptures as we read the, the Ethiopian eunuch was reading the book of Isaiah. And they wanted to be included in that religion. The question then was, under such circumstances, what was to be required of a Gentile convert in order for him to be accepted into the community? What, what must a Gentile convert do to overcome this inherent uncleanness? And so a set of rules was devised by the scribes called the Garim Halakha or Garim Halakath. And essentially that term is Hebrew for rules concerning Gentiles. And at first there was a difference of opinion among the Pharisee scribes concerning whether a Gentile who wanted to be a part of the Jewish community or a, or a community of Pharisees, for example, what had to be done regarding circumcision. There was a difference of opinion. And some Pharisaic scribes believed that the, the Gentile convert would have to be circumcised physically. Some did not. But by the time of Jesus, it was established doctrine among the Pharisees that Gentiles must do three things to be accepted as full converts. And these were minimum, there were other things besides this, but these were the main things that had to be done. The person, if a male, of course, had to be circumcised, the person had to be baptized, and the person had to offer a sacrifice in Jerusalem. These three things had to be done before the person could be accepted and there were other things as well, as I mentioned. They had to prove that they were able and willing to keep the various rituals, purification rituals and so forth, that were required by the community. There was another powerful sect among the Jews at the time of Jesus in the New Testament, and those were the Sadducees. They were a different group of Jews. They were the... In certain respects, they were the, well, they were basically the, consisted of the uh, families of the chief priests and also the lay aristocracy among the Jews in Palestine. And those were primarily the ones who constituted the, the sect of the Sadducees. They actually controlled the temple during the, the period of Jesus' lifetime and for some time after that, during the era of the New Testament church. But they held a number of different ideas from the Pharisees, and one of the ideas that they had a different belief about was whether a Gentile convert had to be circumcised or not. They taught that it was not necessary for one being converted, a Gentile being converted to Judaism, it was not necessary for that person to be circumcised. Even more importantly, however, was the idea of the Hellenistic Jews. Now, remember I said that the Jews were 
divided roughly into two groups, the Western Diaspora that were Greek-speaking and the Eastern Diaspora that spoke Aramaic or Hebrew as their primary language. The Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews outside of Palestine rejected circumcision as a requirement for converts, for Gentile converts. They required only baptism. So what that means is that that Jewish communities in Asia Minor, in Greece, in Italy, and various other places where the predominant language, the, the common language being spoken by the Jews as their primary language in those locations would not have required circumcision of any Gentiles wanting to become part of their community, their synagogue. So in those synagogues, for example, in Asia Minor, which was primarily Greek, a, a, a Greek consisting of Greek communities at that time, or largely of Greek communities at least, Greek-speaking communities, if not Greek in other ways, they, they had synagogues and they would have had Gentile converts in those synagogues who were not circumcised, individuals who were considered part of the community that were Gentiles and who attended services and participated in the life of the community, the synagogue, but they were not circumcised, but they were baptized. And there were many of these Gentile converts in these synagogues. And you, you see that reflected in the book of Acts as you read through the book of Acts where Paul went into various communities and preached in the synagogues. There were not only Jews, that is, Jews of people of Jewish blood there, but there were often large contingents of Gentile converts as well. Now, here's what the Nushaf Herzog Encyclopedia of Religious Knowledge says about this. Quote, Hellenistic, under the heading Hellenistic Uncircumcised Proselytes, here's what it says. It says, The most zealous were like Jews only without circumcision. But no concessions were made in monotheistic faith or in moral requirements, but solely in liturgical matters, or in other words, in ritual matters. There were, those were the only differences. There were no differences in terms of, for example, how the commandments were regarded, the Ten Commandments. But there was a difference in the matter of circumcision. They did not have to be circumcised. Now, the leaders of the church, when this question came up, as discussed in Acts 15, the leaders of the church determined that purification is not a matter of being physically circumcised. It's not a matter of how you wash your dishes or how you wash your hands and arms prior to eating a meal 
Cir uh, purification has to do with the heart and not these physical rituals. Notice what Peter said in Acts 10, or excuse me, Acts 15 and verse 6, beginning with verse 6. Says some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter, and when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to the men and brethren, You know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now this is a reference to what we read earlier where Peter had been directed to go to the house of Cornelius and wound up baptizing him and his household. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them a Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Notice that he said that God had shown them purification came through faith, not through physical circumcision or physical washings of cups and pitchers and things of that sort. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Now, what was this yoke that Peter was referring to? He was referring not to the laws of Scripture, which are enjoined by God, but the laws that were added to scriptural requirements by Jewish scribes and the Pharisees through their traditions. Notice in Matthew 23, Matthew 23 and verse 1, Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. And what that means is that they had both, they had both the religious authority as well as civil authority. They, they were the, they administered the, and actually made and administered the civil laws under the Roman authority as well as religious rules. And so he said, therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. And as other scriptures show, People were expected to obey the law, just like we are expected today to obey the lawful authorities, as long as those laws do not conflict with God's laws. But Jesus went on to say, For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them, or it could be translated, will not remove them, with one of their fingers. They bound heavy burdens, which they could have removed, 
had they desired to because they were merely human devised laws and traditions. And Alfred Adersheim in his book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, writes about these traditions. He says, this is from Alfred Adersheim in Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, to trace the growth of the traditions of the elders, the first place here must be assigned to those legal determinations which traditionalism declared absolutely binding on all not only of equal but even greater obligation than scripture itself now note that their traditions they regarded as being even more binding than the written scriptures what is in the bible in other words their their traditions their religious traditions took precedence over what the Bible says. And this not illogically goes on, Adersheim goes on to say, since tradition was, according to the Pharisees, equally of divine origin with Holy Scripture and authoritatively explained its meaning and generally guarded its sanctity by extending and adding to its provisions, drawing a hedge around its garden enclosed so to speak these traditional ordinances as already stated bear the general name of the halakha which is Hebrew for the way these halakoth were either simply the laws laid down in scripture or else derived from or traced to it by some ingenious and artificial method of exegesis or added to it by way of amplification and for safety's sake, or finally, legalized customs. They provided for every possible and impossible case, entered into every detail of private, family, and public life, and from iron logic, unbounding rigor, and most minute analysis, pursued and dominated man, turn whither he might, laying on him a yoke which was truly unbearable. According to the Jewish view or more correctly, that of the Pharisees and the scribes, God had given Moses on Mount Sinai alike the oral and written law, that is, the law with all its interpretations and applications. From Exodus 20 and verse 1, it was inferred that God had communicated to Moses the Bible, the Mishnah, and the Talmud. The Mishnah and the Talmud are are written versions of the Pharisaic tradition. And Haggadah, even to which scholars would in latest times propound. But traditionalism went further and placed the oral actually above the written law. Traditionalism divided the law into three essential classes. The third class, the sayings of the scribes or rabbis, consisted of halakhic ordinances which could be laid on or moved away by rabbinic decree. So that's what Jesus was talking about. It was these rules which had been made up by the scribes, which were, in their view, uh, of greater authority than the, the scriptures themselves. That's where, the, that's where the controversy lay between Jesus and the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees claimed for themselves authority which went beyond what the scriptures themselves teach. 
They're, they put their authority above the authority of God's word. And so God himself. And so Jesus indicted them by saying, For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay on them, lay, lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move or remove them with one of their fingers. In fact, it was many of their traditions, their petty rules were contradictory and were virtually impossible for anyone to keep faithfully, including them, and they did not keep them. They did not keep God's commandments, as Jesus pointed out a number of times. They were lawless, and yet they imposed these laws on other people. And it was the burden of these traditional laws, laws that had been added to the scriptural requirements, laws that the Jews themselves did not faithfully keep, that the Acts 15 conference decided against. Circumcision was only the first in a whole body of extra-biblical law that the Pharisaic party in the church wanted to impose on Gentile Christians. That's why they added, be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. They were talking about their traditions, these laws, these customs that Jesus had condemned. And they wanted to impose those on the Gentile converts in the church and the church itself. But the apostles and elders led by James agreed that Gentile Christians did not have to adhere to the traditional laws of the Jews, which were supposedly but not actually handed down through Moses. Neither were the Gentiles required to follow the sacrificial and purification laws, which were directly associated with the temple service. We see that reflected over here in Acts chapter 21. In Acts 21 and in verse 21, Peter had come to Jerusalem and he consulted with James, who was the leader of the church at that time, the leading apostle in the church at that time. And in verse 21, James said to Paul of the Jews, and, and the, he was speaking specifically here of evidently of Jews in the church but he said in, in verse 20 he said that they are zealous for the law in other words they were in the church but they had continued to observe these traditions these customs that were not biblical and James said to Paul, he said, They have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Now this was a lie. This was not what Paul taught. Paul did not go in teaching Jews that they did not have to circumcise their children. You won't find that anywhere in the Bible. What Paul did teach is that Gentile converts, adult converts, did not have to be circumcised. And they didn't have to follow those customs or traditions. And so James said, What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. 
Therefore do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing but that you yourself also walk, walk orderly and keep the law. Notice what law is it that they were talking about? It's talking about laws of purification under the Levitical system. These people had taken a, Levit- a Levitical vow. And when one took a, Le- a Levitical vow, he could not cut his hair as long as he was under that vow. When the term of the vow ended, then he had to go through a purification ritual, and offer, which included the offering of sacrifices and so forth. And so James suggested to Paul that there were four men, Jews, evidently Christian Jews, who had taken a Levitical, or I mean a Nazarite vow. Did I say Levitical vow? I meant Nazarite vow. Had taken a Nazarite vow, and their term of the term of the vow was ending. And so he said, go to the temple with them and go through this ritual with them and pay their expense, that is, the sacrifices that they had to offer, pay for them, and then they can shave their heads. They can cut their hair, in other words. But James went on to say in verse 25, but concerning the Gentiles who believe that is converted to Christianity, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. What he's telling Paul is that the Gentile converts did not have to submit themselves to the Levitical law in terms of its purification rituals and its sacrificial system. But they did have to purify themselves from unclean practices. He's talking about how they could show that they had purified themselves from the unclean practices common among the Gentiles. And the means for them to do that was to separate themselves from idolatry or things offered to idols to avoid eating blood or things strangled which would have been not bled properly and from sexual immorality. Now, these rules or these things that were required of the Gentile converts were taken, were, were a part of the Garim Halakha, the rules concerning the Gentiles. And these specific parts of the Garim Halakha, or Garim Halakha, are actually from Scripture itself. They are things that God Himself, in His Word, imposes upon not only you might say Jews or Israelites, 
but strangers among the Israelites. Strangers who, as it's put in the Old Testament, who are within your gates. And this is what the term a proselyte of the gate refers to, is a Gentile who dwells within the community and is considered a part of the community, a God-fearer, and he is expected to observe the same laws as anyone else in the community. In Leviticus chapter 17, notice this is where we find these laws alluded to here. Leviticus 17 and verse 8, notice what it says. Also you shall say to them, whatever man of the house of Israel or the strangers who dwell among you. Notice it's not just the house of Israel that's addressed here. It is the strangers, the Gentiles who dwell among you who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. What got this law was that any sacrifices had to be offered at the altar of God. They could not be offered anywhere else, and they could not be offered to false gods. And so they had to separate themselves from any sacrifices which had been offered to idols, things polluted by idols. In, in verse 10, it says, Whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, in other words, Gentiles in your community, who eats any blood, I will set my face against the person who eats blood. So why did the church decide that they had to separate themselves from things offered to idols and from blood? Because that's what God's word says. A, a Gentile who is going to be a part of the community must not be offering things to idols, must not be involved in idolatrous customs, must, separate, must not eat blood. goes on to mention things in this chapter who die of themselves which would include things strangled or any animal that dies without being, being properly bled. That, that flesh is forbidden to anyone who wants to be a part of the community. And then in chapter 18, we won't, we won't read chapter 18. You can read it later. But it deals with various kinds of sexual immorality. And in Chapter 18 and verse 26, notice it says, where it's been discussing sexual immorality, it says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you, any Gentile. Notice that these laws apply to Jew and Gentile alike. Anybody who expects to be considered a part of the community, a God-fearer must observe these laws. 
Now, is this all that was required? Some people claim that that this is this is all that was required of a Gentile. There's nothing there specifically about obeying the Ten Commandments, although certainly sexual immorality and idolatry would be included in the Ten Commandments. But is this the totality of what was required? What it's discussing there is what a Gentile, the minimum a Gentile had to do to be eligible for baptism. Baptism is not mentioned here in Acts 15, but baptism is required of converts. Notice in Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16 and verse 15. Jesus said, go into all the world. He said to this to his disciples. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. Notice he said, he who believes and is baptized. Baptism is not mentioned in the requirements there spelled out in Acts 15 because it's, it's talking about just basic requirements to begin the process of becoming a Christian, to separate yourselves from those things. But baptism is also required because remember that Philip baptized the eunuch after he believed. Peter baptized Cornelius into his household and other Gentiles who believed. Later on, Paul baptized Gentiles who believed. They had to be baptized, and they had to obey the commandments, as we will see as well. The idea is that these were minimum requirements for Gentiles to demonstrate that they had separated themselves from heathen ways as a prerequisite to entering the community. When a Gentile entered a Pharisaic community by undergoing circumcision, baptism, and sacrifice, that was not all that was required. That was just the minimum to begin the process, so to speak. Once having entered the community, he was expected to obey all the rules, all the laws of the community. And it's the same with the requirements outlined in Acts 15 for Gentile converts into the church. Once having separated themselves from unclean heathen practices, Gentile converts were expected to obey all the commandments pertaining to Christians. Notice over in Acts chapter, or in Ephesians, rather, chapter 2, Ephesians 2 and verse 14, Paul writes, and he was writing to a church in Ephesus which was a Gentile city. Most of the people in this congregation, or at least a large number of them, would have been Gentiles, Gentile converts. And he's writing to both the Jewish and the Gentile converts. And he says, He himself, that is Jesus Christ, is our peace. This is Ephesians 2, verse 14. Who has made both one. Both here refers to Jews and Gentiles. 
And he's saying that Jesus has reconciled the two and made them one. He has broken down the middle wall of separation. Now, in the temple was a wall. And inside that wall was a place called the Court of the Israelites. Outside was another area of the temple uh, complex, the Court of the Gentiles. And Gentiles were permitted to be in the Court of the Gentiles, but they were not permitted to go beyond the, the wall separating that court from the court of the Israelites under penalty of death. And so what Paul is alluding to here is that wall that separated Jews from Gentiles even in the temple. And he says that that separation has been abolished in verse 15 in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Now, as a matter of fact, there were many laws among the Jews that, we, that we've already discussed that were specifically designed to make a separation between themselves and Gentiles. There were also laws among Gentiles that were specifically designed to separate them from Jews. And what Paul says is that God has broken down these artificial walls, these walls contained in ordinances or traditions of men to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, the enmity between Jew and Gentile. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off, the Gentiles, and to those who were near, the Jews. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, speaking to the Gentiles, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So through Jesus Christ those rules of mankind have been removed. And we are all one in Christ. It doesn't matter what your ancestry is if you are repentant. You repent of your sins and you're baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. You're part of the household of God. Your physical ancestry has no bearing on your status or role in the church because it is one body of people united and joined together through the Holy Spirit. In, Acts, in Ephesians 4 and verse 4, Ephesians 4 and verse 4, Paul says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling. Then in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 20, Colossians 2 and verse 20, Paul wrote, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? 
do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. What he's saying is that once you have repented of your sins and forsaken these customs and traditions of men, why do you want to go back to them? Now he's actually speaking here of Gentiles who, who were going back into idolatrous customs, but it would apply equally to any customs or traditions of men imposed on individuals is self-imposed religion, a man-made religion. He says we are free of those things through having died with Christ to the world. Gentiles, Jews, Israelites, any Christian is freed from decrees imposed by the traditions and commandments of men. We are not obliged to live according to human devised tradition in terms of religious faith. Our faith is to be the religion of the word of God. And we are not ruled by the sayings of the scribes or the rabbis. Well, for that matter, we're not to be ruled by the decrees of Christian churches that impose traditions on people which are not biblical and often are, in fact, contrary to what the Bible teaches. But in the Garim Halakha, or Halakath, there are a number of other laws. You can read, for example, through the latter part of the book of Leviticus, a number of very laws that have to do with specific ways to apply the Ten Commandments. And you will read over and over there how they apply to both Jews and Gentiles among the, the people of the community. And notice in Deuteronomy chapter 31, we read about the Feast of Tabernacles. Deuteronomy 31 and verse 12 says, Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within their gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law. Notice that the Gentiles were among those expected to attend the Feast of Tabernacles and to learn to fear God and carefully observe the law, God's laws, the commandments of God. In the Sabbath commandment you read about in Exodus 20, it specifically refers to Gentiles, the stranger, within your gate who is to keep the Sabbath. In Isaiah chapter 56, we read about the Sabbath and how it applies to Gentiles as well as others. And in Isaiah 56, verse 6, it says, 
also sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Notice that here Gentiles who fear the Lord are expected to keep the Sabbath. And this has to do not only with ancient times, but also with our age today. I won't get into a lengthy explanation of that right now, but but uh, it's clear that the Sabbath, as well as the other commandments of God, apply to Gentiles. The church... Leaders examine the scriptures in determining these questions, this question of what is to be required of Gentile converts in making their decision. And they saw the scriptures that spoke of Gentiles worshiping God. Notice what Paul wrote in Romans 15. Romans 15, verse 8, Paul wrote, Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God. A servant to the circumcision, to Jews, in other words, or Israelites, for that matter, who are circumcised, to confirm the promises made to the fathers. Uh, But... Notice who else is included in verse 9. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written. Notice he says, as it is written. In other words, this is prophesied in God's word. That not only would Jesus Christ come for the salvation of the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And so he quotes scripture and he says, and this is quoting scripture, he says, For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, he says, another scripture, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. In verse 11, again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. He's quoting scripture here the Old Testament. Laud him, all you people. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Then in verse 15, he says, Nevertheless, brethren, I've written more boldly to you some points as reminding you of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore I have reasons of glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God, for I will not dare or for I will for I will not dare to speak of any of these things 
which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. In mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Notice that he said that he had taken the gospel to the Gentiles to make them obedient. Obedient to God. Faithful to God. Acceptable to God through working righteousness. In the next sermon in this series, which will be the last one, I plan to go into more detail on what laws the Gentiles are required to keep and how that was determined by the church. But in summary, the principle behind what was determined in the Acts 15 conference is stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 19, where Paul wrote, Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Among the things required of us as Christians is that we keep the commandments of God.